0: Welcome to the A Sound Effect podcast, the podcast about sound effects. My name is Eswin Andersen, and I'm the founder of asoundeffect.com. And I'm Christian Halske, founder of Hertz & Bits Sound Effects. In this episode, we're featuring a field recorder who's made quite a name for himself with his excellent field recordings. Yes, Jennifer Walden spoke to Thomas Rex Beverly, who has released a fair number of libraries of nature ambiences from all over the world, and as well as uh, animal specifics and many other things. You could say he's a a field recordist with a pretty big emphasis on field. That is true. And what about the new releases from the sound effects community? Yeah, well, this time we have an industrial robot. We have some springtime ambiences. We have recordings of uh, some quiet hotels and some uh, squishy, splatty ooze kind of sounds to uh, round it off. Very nice. Let's hear it. Industrial Robot by Just Sound Effects features 142 recordings of an ABB industrial robot. Seasons of Earth Spring by Boom Library, is a collection of springtime ambiences. Quiet Hotels at Night, Volume 2 by West Wolf is Quiet Hotel Ambiences and Room Tones recorded in Bulgaria. Squish Splat Ooze by Boombox Library. Features recordings of various thick, viscous liquids. Next up is an interview with Thomas Rex Beverly.
1: Hey, this is Jennifer Walden for a sound effect right now you're hearing a field recording from thomas rex beverly he's our latest featured sound creator for this podcast series where we get to know a bit about the people who design the amazing libraries on a sound effect thomas rex beverly has captured incredible natural soundscapes of arctic and desert regions he's perfected a method for recording in the rain using leaves and moss and other environment supplied elements to shelter the mics. Additionally, he's captured unusual natural sounds, like the sound of a bowed cactus and giant pine cones. So he's here to talk about all of that and more, plus you'll get to hear some of these sounds from his field recording trips. So hello Thomas, thank you so much for joining me.
2: Um, yeah, it's great to be here, so um, so hi I'm Tom, um, yeah it's really nice to be part of this featured sound creator program and I'm excited to tell you a little bit about my field recording adventures.
1: Awesome. So first, let's start with, how did you get started in sound?
2: My kind of sound recording journey didn't start with audio engineering or field recording. Actually, at the beginning, I I started as a composer, so I went to school as a contemporary classical composer. So I've written lots of music for ensembles like orchestras, choirs, wind ensembles, that sort of thing. So I did that through my undergrad in college, and then I was on track to try to get a doctorate in music composition and then eventually be a university professor and write music and teach music composition. But for a variety of reasons, I decided I want to jump ship from academia. But um, before I decided to do that, I I did a master's program in music technology and composition. And that really got me into multimedia composition. So things with recorded sounds and um, live electronics and video components and things. And that's stuff that I had not done before in my undergrad writing for just live instruments generally. And so in this master's program, I learned a lot about music technology got into the black hole of Max MSP and learning to do my own kind of audio coding. Um, I learned my kind of fundamentals of audio engineering, doing studio recording, and then also learning about all sorts of different kinds of microphones. And then the biggest thing was probably running live sound for actual new music concerts. And so I was running the board and setting up the mics and Learning to be able to do live sound was a big part of training my ears with all of the audio recording. And so basically that all eventually taught me the fundamentals of a lot of recording. And then I gradually started to figure out that there was this thing called field recording where I could record stuff outdoors. And so that fit with a lot of the outdoor adventurous stuff that I had loved to do for most of my life.
1: That's an interesting journey. So you went from making music to setting up live gigs to eventually field recording. So when did you start creating sound effects libraries? Like, when did you realize that yeah, this could be a full time career?
2: It was a slow process, kind of. I was still writing a lot of music in that master's program, and the actual field recording that I started doing was generally for my own music. I'd go out with a handheld recorder, and I was generally interested in in nature sounds at that point, and I would find things like musical drips, and I would record those, and I'd dictate the rhythm, and I'd turn that into a part of the music composition for a percussion piece that I was writing, or I would um, do lots of beginning field recording, but just for my own stuff. And so that gradually taught me more about recording outside. And I think that the first thing that I happened to find, I was just trying to learn more about recording outdoors and um, different kinds of recorders and microphones. And I just happened to find Paul Verostek's creative field recording blog just by Googling things. And um, I was kind of off to the races after that. I was like, oh, there's this thing called field recording where I don't have to be indoors all the time. I'd always loved Um, doing various outdoors things I've done some long distance bicycle trips I've done some mountaineering I've done a lot of outdoor things and I had never really found a really good way to bridge that with the musical interest that I had but it's like okay there's this field recording that's kind of in the middle where I can get out and get into these amazing wild places that I love to visit and then also record the sounds and maybe try to make a living with that. So I kind of started with Paul Verosik's books and then he has these ebooks on field recording and how to make sound libraries and all that. And then I decided to um, give it a go and I jumped ship from this track I was on to um end up in academia, and I decided to focus on trying to start a little small business that I'd been interested in doing for a long time, and gave it a, a go of trying to record a bunch of sound libraries and do other field recording sorts of jobs, and yeah, over the last five years, I've released about 70, my 70th sound library, so it's turned into quite a giant catalog. I'm happy to say that I'm making a, a full-time living as a field recorder, so I'm very thankful to be doing that.
1: So there's a lot of field recording libraries out there. What makes your approach to sound effect libraries unique? Or is there a unique style to your libraries that make them stand out from others?
2: I'd say that I I really just try to record sounds that I find captivating. And then I'm trying to tell the stories of those sounds. In general, I'm interested in sounds of the natural world. So I'm trying to inspire people to care about these places and protect these places. And I'm trying to do that through my art, which is field recording. So... As much as possible, I want to be outdoors. My main focus or style is generally just focused on natural soundscapes and wildlife. That can be all sorts of nature ambiences. I'm also very interested in finding these things that I call kind of natural wonders. So those are things like, there's a field in Pennsylvania called Ringing Rocks where it's this giant boulder field and you go out there and you hit it with these hammers and it sounds like a chime or a glockenspiel. finding things like what I call kind of living ice, which is usually naturally occurring lake ice, that when it shifts and cracks, it makes these like sort of sci-fi laser sounds. finding things like bowing a cactus needle with a violin bow and I can talk about that a bit more later. It turns out, yeah, if you bow a cactus needle with a violin bow it makes these incredible organic screeching textures with all this ultrasonic energy and who would think to bow a cactus, right? Most recently it was uh, recording these apocalyptic insect swarms of these 17-year cicadas that come out in the eastern United States and I can talk about that a little bit more later as well but Generally, I'm trying to find these kind of natural wonders of sound that are something that is really surprising and interesting that maybe you haven't heard before. And as far as the other kind of styles, generally I'm interested in deserts, and I also really love going to the Arctic. I've been to Alaska and most recently Iceland. I'm not the guy you go to for jungle sounds at this point. I'm sure I'll get excited about jungles at some point, but at this point I I love the kind of subtle sounds of these almost silent spaces and these wide open spaces. I get a little claustrophobic if I'm in forests too long generally. I'm focused on sounds of the natural world. I occasionally do some other things as well, but I'm mostly focused on weather and wildlife. Those are the things I generally like to record. So there's a ton of places to visit and I've got a long list of outdoor places I'd love to record.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about some of your favorite and most interesting sound recording trips so far. Uh, where did you go and what did you capture and why do they stand out or what makes these trips special for you?
2: Um, there's kind of three big areas that stand out. I started a lot of my field recording in West Texas and then the first big recording expedition I did was in Alaska in 2018. And then most recently was Iceland this past summer. And so I can talk about each of those a little bit. West Texas is kind of where the field recording really got serious for me. My parents retired in this little adobe house out in the mountains near Marfa, Texas. So it was a little adobe house in this gorgeous mountain valley up at about 6,000 feet. And it was just a wonderful remote place with the wonderful acoustics in this valley. And it was just the place that I got my first set of professional mics and started experimenting with lots of quiet desert soundscapes. these massive thunderstorms that would come in in the summer and make these booming thunderclaps that would echo around in the valley. And that was in the days before 32-bit float recording. So I would have to learn how to ride the gain of the thunderstorm. So I would watch the flash of the lightning and know how loud the thunderclap was gonna be. And then I adjust the gain because most of those things were within quarter mile, half mile. And so you get these extremely loud booms you get hailstorms out there, you'd get these hurricane force sandstorms blowing around, so it was a great place to learn how to start to record weather, especially thunderstorms and wind, and how do you record in the wind when it's blowing 50, 60 miles an hour, and it's not just these distorted buffeting recordings. is also the place where i found some of the cactus to do this boat cactus stuff i'll talk about that a little bit more later it was a place where i experimented building these aeolian harps or wind harps which is it's sort of like a wind chime but you build it with tuned strings that are over a resonating box and then in the same way that a wind chime is blown by the wind the wind actually blows these strings And so I would build these wind harps and I would take them out into different types of foliage, different kinds of trees that would make different wind sounds or different grasses, that sort of thing. And then you can actually get the wind resonating both the sound of the foliage with these wind harps. And so you get these really pretty lush acoustic drones that are organically mixed with the sound of the wind. And so that was kind of a interesting sound design sort of thing. That was the first place I recorded animals for the first time. So there was some hummingbirds out there. I was able to set up these feeders and get these isolated recordings of hummingbirds from two or three inches away. them humming and darting all around and they do these dog fights and all sorts of things and it's really interesting how the different species have different fundamental pitches to their hum Some of them have a fundamental around 50 hertz some are more like 75 Hertz some of them have different sounds between the different species like some of the males in the Rufus species have this really annoying hum at about 10,000 Hertz and then the females don't have that and so like that 10,000 Hertz hum is like a warning for when that bird's coming in because the the males are generally territorial and they'll dogfight. It was just a wonderful spot to do a lot of sound recording. And so I spent a lot of time out there just building my field recording skills and recording a lot of of different things. The next big trip after West Texas was, Alaska was my first kind of recording more like an expedition that I get to get really remote. I've done a ton of recording all over the continental US, but Alaska was the first time really getting out there. It was flying up to Anchorage and taking a bush plane out through this incredible mountain valley where you're flying along in this bush plane, I go out to the runway, and it was my first time in one of those little planes, and the pilot walks out of the hangar, and he opens the door, and I hop in, and it's like driver's seat, passenger seat, and in a car. I'm in one of those tiny, like, two-person bush planes, and you're flying through these mountain valleys where you can almost reach out and touch these glaciers. Spent two weeks up there. It was my first time in the Arctic. Kind of the in, endless summer daylight was just absolutely amazing, and just an entirely different soundscape than I'd been around. Just being around these massive thunderstorms and windstorms up there, being around grizzly bears and moose and had some curious grizzly bears like come and sniff and lick and like make a bunch of sounds right in front of my mics a couple times. I had a moose like take a bite out of one of my microphone blimps. I came back from leaving the rig out by itself and the mics had been knocked over and I was like, oh man, what happened? And there was like a horse-sized bite mark in the top of the blimp. So that was a learning experience. I first thought that, oh, I found these defined game trails where animals are clearly walking through the forest. And I was like, oh, I'll just set up the mics really close to that. And yeah, that was a bad decision because I set them up too close and then the animals would get off the game trail and come and sniff my mics. The best part was the grizzly bear coming and checking it out, but it wasn't like a passing sniff. They sniffed and licked and grunted and moved around for a full 20 minutes or so around these mics. So I actually got these fabulous recordings, and they ended up knocking over the tripod, and very, very lucky that they didn't actually step on it or anything. But, yeah, you just got to learn those lessons, and then... Another thing about Alaska was, it was my first time doing serious rain recording. That was the first time that I had left my $5,000 Sennheiser microphone rig out in the rain, and so that was a really, really big learning experience. I've developed some ways to be able to record not under a man-made structure, and so that requires generally building some natural foliage, can peas, and then also finding ways to waterproof your microphone blimp in a few ways. Because a lot of the rain recordings you'll hear are just from under a man-made structure, and so part of the sound you're getting is the sound of that metal or that wood roof or that porch or something. And so it's really, really, really tricky to be able to not destroy your mics by leaving them in the woods during a rainstorm. So I've developed a few techniques um, for doing that, and I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more later. Alaska was an absolutely fabulous place. I spent two weeks up there. Yeah, it just made me kind of fall in love with the Arctic and the endless daylight and just the beauty of the mountains up there and the wide open spaces. And so that's, that's made me want to go back. I had had some plans to do some more Arctic stuff in 2020 and obviously the pandemic messed everybody's travel plans up but luckily i was able to go to iceland this past summer in 2021 and so that was kind of my second kind of major recording expedition up to there up to iceland so i spent about two weeks Traveled around to all sorts of places. And so it was just really, really good to be back in the far north in the summer. For somebody that loves wide open spaces, there's very, very few trees in Iceland. So it's just endless views of these Lord of the Rings looking landscapes. It's these mossy covered lava flows. There's very few trees. So you get these really strong windstorms. I was just able to find some really fascinating new soundscapes. It was just wonderful to get out of North America for the summer and record different wildlife and birds and just be in a totally different soundscape with all of the relatively new volcanic rock and the moss all over everything and these bird cliffs. So one of my favorite things was I love recording weather and I recorded some of the most soothing and mellow rain that I've ever recorded. A lot of the rain I've recorded previously was either in Alaska, I did some in Maine. Like the Maine recordings were on these large, big leaf maple leaves. The sound of the rain on those larger leaves is very different than something you would get in Iceland. Yeah, one of my favorite things in Iceland was recording this hello like mossy tundra. And so I was able to find a few spots where I had these little caves where I could find some rain protection for the microphones and then also be able to get the sound of these raindrops on this tundra moss. The wonderful thing about the lava flow, like a lot of these somewhat recent lava flows, will have moss growing all over them. And what's really cool about the lava flow is that generally it's basalt and the basalt is pretty porous. And so you put your mics under one of these rock overhangs, and then when it rains, you get the sound of this really mellow, beautiful rain that is hitting this pillow like moss out in front. And then the water actually seeps through the basalt rock that I'm using as a rain protection and so you get these melodic kind of cave-like drips that are coming through and so you get this cave-like drip sound and then this super mellow mossy rain sound that comes out there and it's just totally different than any other kind of rain i'd recorded before and yeah just one of the gems of the trip There's these giant shorebird colonies where these birds nest on the cliffs, and so getting up to these really giant cliffs and hanging a boom mic over there and trying to get these shorebirds that are making this kind of intense cacophony of shorebird seagull kind of calls. Getting to see puffins and watching their adorable little flights as they take off.
1: So as with the moose and bears in Alaska, did the shorebirds of Iceland mess with your mics?
2: Not at the bird cliffs. The bird cliffs, those species of birds, I was able to keep enough distance that um, I wasn't bothering them. And they're quite loud in the bird colonies, so you don't have to get super close. Um, so they didn't bother me. There's a bird called an Arctic tern. I got dive-bombed pretty bad with those because I was walking and recording before I I realized that I was in a nesting colony for these Arctic terns. I was just on a trail, and all of a sudden I'm getting dive-bombed by these, like an Arctic seagull-looking bird. Because i had seen these warning signs. A lot of the signs in Iceland are super helpful because it's generally, they have a lot of pictures of what the warning sign is but I, for whatever reason, didn't pay attention to that. But it was basically like a picture of like a bird and then like a warning sign of this bird that's gonna dive bomb you. But oh no. basically the Arctic terns are very, very territorial and you don't want to accidentally get yourself into a nesting colony of them. So, but they're really, really beautiful. They're like a shore bird that kind of has the profile of a fighter plane. And so they have these kind of skinny arcing wings that are really pretty. And they, they do these really beautiful calls. I was able to find a few places where I could leave some mics and have them flying all around without bothering the birds. There's not any large wildlife in Iceland to to bother the mics. the The largest land animal is an Arctic fox that they still have there. So most of the wildlife there is is bird life. But um, it's a pretty magical place. So. There's tons of these beautiful Icelandic stallions around. I was able to do some horse recording for the first time. I found this stallion that was isolated from the rest of the herd. And so he was calling to them every, every couple minutes with these very lonely, powerful kind of horse whinnies and neighs. And so that was really fun. Most of the country is formed by these lava flows. And so sometimes you'll get these lava flows that come right up to the ocean. And when the basalt lava flow cools, it cools into these hexagonal columns. They're varying sizes, but some of them are about a foot across. And so as the lava cools, it condenses a little bit and it makes these little joints that leave this hexagonal column. And they're really, really pretty. I found this one spot where it was about a 50 foot cliff. So I'm on the top of the cliff. These basalt column formations are there. And then what has happened is generally on a beach, you're either going to have a sandy beach Sometimes you'll have pebbly beaches, but it's unusual to have a beach that's like moderate size rocks. So this was a beach covered in bowling balls basically, because the rocks are so relatively new volcanic rocks that the waves haven't ground them into smaller bits yet. And so on a pebbly beach, the wave hits and then the water gets sucked back out and you generally get this this like sort of slurping um, sound in, on a pebbly beach that maybe you've heard. And it was kind of like that, but it's like, imagine a wave coming in. It, It hits this beach covered in bowling balls and it picks up thousands of them and jostles them together. And it makes that like sort of slurping sound but it's like way more intensified and it basically sounds like this giant rock monster that's like sort of talking and slurping and it like sucks these rocks out and it's like such a fabulous sound. So I found this perfect spot and I was able to actually hang some mics over this cliff and leave them there for 12 hours. So I got the whole change of the tide coming in and out. Yeah, it's just such a fabulous sound. Big wave hits, jostles these thousands of bowling balls around. It's like this wave rock monster that's kind of talking with the ocean. And it oh, it was so beautiful.
1: That's so cool. Um, what was the most challenging library you created and what were the challenges?
2: So I mentioned this a little bit before that rain recording in general, I have found the most challenging thing. So. I have some desert thunderstorm recordings, but most of those were done from under a man-made structure. So I was just recording the rain from under a porch or I was recording thunder from under a porch. So it's difficult to record the thunder, but it's kind of a next level challenge to actually be able to record that out in the environment. So the first time I did that was in Alaska. And then the second time I have a, so I have an Alaska rain library. I have a Maine rain library, and then I have this most recent Iceland rain. But yeah, it's super, super challenging to leave your mic out in the rain because rain kills microphones they don't like the water so in general most rain recordings that you're gonna hear are made from underneath a man-made structure I've developed some techniques about how to record natural rain in the environment so I developed some of those I learned quite a few from George Vlad as well the key to it is learning to leave your mics actually out in the woods and what you do is you build these natural foliage canopies so that might be if you're in a deciduous forest, I'm actually gonna take the microphone blimp and I'm gonna build a little canopy of the tree leaves of that forest above it. And so then you don't get the thunk on the microphone blimp if the drops are hitting it. So, okay, I skipped the step, right? Like microphone blimps aren't normally waterproof, right? So you can take a Sonella blimp And there's this stuff called Nixwax that it's a acoustically transparent, but water phobic molecule. So it's sort of similar to like Gore-Tex kind of things that you'll get in outdoor clothing that like doesn't let water in, but is breathable. It's a similar sort of thing. So basically you can buy a Senelo Blimp and you can spray this Nixwax on it and it bonds to the fabric and it lets in the air and the sound, but it doesn't let in the water. And so that was a total game changer because previous to that, like I didn't leave my, like it was very difficult to leave your mics out by themselves for long recording sessions because it might rain and destroy my expensive microphones. So yeah, I got one of these Senel bumps before I went to Alaska, and I sprayed this Nixwax stuff all over them. And I done a couple tests, and it seemed to work. But it was incredibly nerve-wracking to leave my multi-thousand-dollar Sennheiser double mid-side rig out in the rain for the first time. And so you put the recorder in a dry bag, so that's fine. And then trust that this waterproofing stuff is going to work. And so generally, you put the Nixwax on the inner. Cover of the blimp, and then you cover the blimp. They have a rain cover too, so it's basically like a honeycombed plastic cover that helps to disperse the raindrops. But in general, you have to build these natural foliage canopies to catch the raindrops and focus the the drips away from the blimp. Otherwise, you just get these thumps on the blimp or thumps on the microphone tripod. And so, yeah, it's incredibly difficult to figure out the blimp waterproofing, and then it's really tricky to get the foliage stuff correct getting it at the right density of foliage above the mic to make it not sound closed off, getting it at the right height above the mic, being able to build those in a way that it's gonna sound really good in that environment. So yeah, there's a lot of tricks to getting that right. I ended up being extremely happy with the Alaska rain recordings, but I didn't have the system kind of perfected. I had to do some work in RX to edit things, and so it's always better if you can record things correctly in the field, right? Some things you can mitigate in post by working in RX, but like if there's a field recording hell, it's like removing thumps from rain recordings for hours and hours and hours. It's a very tedious and miserable thing, so you want to get it right when you're recording rain. So the first time I really got it right was in Maine. I drove up there from the Philadelphia actually during the pandemic in 2020. Um, So I was up there in the fall. That was my first time kind of out after being quarantined for a while and was just by myself in the woods trying to record rain in October. And um, I had perfected my ability to build these foliage canopies. And so those are working better and it wasn't letting drips through that were thunking on it. I was getting better at building those quickly and being able to affect that whole system. And then I started doing a new thing, which is called the tree ears microphone technique, which basically you you strap two omni microphones to uh, the sides of a tree about the width of a human head. So you end up with like this pseudo binaural stereo image. The tree is basically the human head. And so you electrical tape two omni mics to the side of the tree. And then what I actually do is I tape large leaves above those mics to the actual tree. And so in this case, it was these big leaf maple leaves that I would tape to the tree above the mics. Then the raindrops would hit that leaf, and it would filter off and never hit the mic. Yeah, I finally figured out how to do that well, and I was able to record long stretches of really beautiful deciduous rain that didn't have any technical issues. I didn't have to remove any thumps in RX. I didn't ruin any microphones. I have ruined quite a few I've definitely ruined some microphones with my attempts to record rain so it's a expensive and, and challenging thing to deal with so sometimes you got to destroy a microphone to get the best recording so Yeah, I really love the challenge of trying to do that. And then as I mentioned before, the rain in Iceland was another challenge because it was really difficult. Like there's not a lot of trees there. And so there's also not an easy way to make these natural foliage canopies in a lot of ways. So a lot of my solution was finding these lava caves where I could have a rain cover and then also get the sound of this mellow rain on the tundra moss, so. Rain is incredibly challenging there's a real danger of destroying the mics but it's it's such a beautiful sound and if you can capture the sound of that weather out in the forest or in the grass or in the shrubland or in the lava flow on the moss there's all this incredible subtlety to the different types of rain sometimes it's worth the chance of destroying the microphones i use the the LOM Uzi microphones a lot for recording rain and i love the sound of those microphones I've destroyed quite a few of those mics, trying all sorts of adventurous, different types of recording techniques that are not always successful. So I've destroyed quite a few of them with rain. I've lost some of those to chipmunks chewing on microphone cables and microphones. Chipmunks don't like you strapping microphones to their tree when you're doing the tree ears. So, But overall, rain is by far the most difficult thing I've recorded. Hopefully my next recording trip is going to be recording in a bunch of sand dunes. And so recording windstorms in actual sand dunes has a real potential to destroy recording gear. So I think that's going to be an exciting new challenge. And I may break some more microphones, but hopefully I'll get some good sounds.
1: And do you think your technique for recording in sand will be similar to recording in rain? Like that Nix Wax that you put on your blimp, would that be effective for keeping sand out? Or what do you think your strategy will be for recording in sand?
2: Some things definitely transfer. Like I will be using dry bags to keep the sand out. I use these special XLR connectors, the Nutric XHD series or whatever. They're basically a XLR cable that has some extra O-rings on it. So it's sealed for moisture. Just your standard xlr cable you could have some sand or moisture work its way in so i use those i think it's going to be really challenging to keep the sand out of the blimp a lot of it will be stopped by the furry cover the actual sand grains i'm not concerned about like there's a range of size of sand as well right so there's larger grains but if you get more dust kind of things that can get through the blimp and that can be problematic I have by no means figured it out, but a lot of the stuff should translate. And in general, it's going to involve just making sure that I have all of my gear pre-wired and connected and put into the dry bags before I even go into the dunes. Definitely won't be connecting microphones or XLR cables and stuff once you're out in the dunes. And I have some ideas. I'm sure it'll be very, very challenging. I got myself some ski goggles so I can avoid getting sand blasted and going to do some experiments with some hydrophones in the sand and maybe some parabolic stuff too. And if I'm going to spend five days straight in some dunes, I think there'll be some real potential to get sand in places that you don't want it. So we'll see. I think it'd be a really good challenge. We'll see how it goes.
1: So of the libraries that you have out now, which of those are you most proud of and why?
2: So I mentioned a a few of them earlier, the ringing rocks and the living ice kind of libraries. But the one I think I'm most proud of is the bowed cactus. Most of the nature sounds I record, they're my personal artistic perspective on a type of sound that's obviously been recorded. Maybe that's a specific animal species or a type of weather or a location. Within field recording, I think it's really rare to find a sound like bowed cactus that hasn't really been recorded before and doesn't easily fit into a normal category of wood or glass or metal or any of those sorts of things. So I got this crazy idea it actually came out of some of the classical composing stuff that i'd done there's this composer named john cage that has done a bunch of experimental music a lot of kind of music philosophy stuff as well and he had this piece for prepared cactus where he had cooked up some contact mics to this cactus and he had some uh, various other things going on but one of the things they were doing was plucking the needles on the cactus and they had a contact mic hooked up to it and You could hear different pitches because the needles were slightly different lengths and so you get that little plucking sound and you'd have a slightly different pitch i thought that was interesting i was like what if you took a violin bow and bowed it right like you can bow the side of a cymbal, and you get that screechy metallic sound like would the cactus do anything interesting because i wasn't super excited about the contact mic sound of the cactus but i was like okay what if i use acoustic mics and buy some violin bows and see what this could do and I mean, I have lots of terrible field recording ideas that don't work out. Um, And I was like, this is probably going to be one of them. But luckily I was in West Texas. There's this species of cactus called Ocotillo that it's like, imagine a bunch of spaghetti and it's like sticks up vertically into the air, 15 to 25 feet. And there's these big spines that kind of sway. And they have these big old spikes on them that are one or two inches. And so I was able to just go out, get a big stem of this cactus bring it in and start experimenting with it. My expectations were pretty low. I got the violin bow out, put the rosin on it, set up the mics so they were really, really close, one or two inches away, um, and just started bowing this thing, and it's it was just completely amazing. <laughs> incredible gritty screechy organic sort of texture with all this ultrasonic energy too that I didn't know at the time but what I would try to do is I would play them I would get these long gritty droning textures and then what I would also try to do is I would listen to a recording of a lion roar or something and then I would try to imitate the phrasing of that lion roar while bowing this cactus. And so I was basically trying to create these kind of creature sounds by bowing the cactus. And so what you ended up getting is like a a roaring sort of sound. And then if you pitch it down an octave or something, it almost by itself, it'll sound like a T-Rex roar or Velociraptor or something. And it was just like, this is nuts and it's such a fun sound and then i realized that it has all this ultrasonic content all the way up to like 70 80000 hertz so when you pitch it down it has a whole bunch of interesting texture and character and so yeah i just did a ton of experimenting really difficult to find the types of cactus that actually make the sound most cactus don't have strong enough needles and so you need these longer ones there's some yucca kind of species where you can bow the blades on things too and then I did a bunch of experimenting with plucking the different needles and making different kinds of like pluck textures as well but that's the thing that I'm most proud of because it just doesn't fit into a lot of other categories and it was just a super fun captivating sound and it was just fascinating to me I love finding sounds that are kind of a sound of the natural world that you didn't know existed, right? Who would think that you'd get these amazing, organic, gritty textures out of a cactus needle? But it turns out the spines have all this texture to them and it resonates through the body of the cactus and it makes these astonishing sounds. So I love finding things like that and I'm constantly trying to find others. Found a little bit of that with, I did another library called Giant Pinecones that they're about a foot long these giant pine cones that grow in California. And when the petals open to release the nuts, it creates a pretty good resonating body within the pine cone. And then each one of the little petals has this really sharp needle on the end of it. And so I figured out that you can scrape these pine cones on other different types of wood. And those claws give you these really interesting, gritty, stuttering wood textures. It's just a kind of a, a different take on a lot of different kind of wood textures I try to find things like that as much as possible and then sometimes I just get excited about a really screechy metal gate or something at some ranch that I found and I'll screech that gate open and close for a couple hours Whoa. for a few hours so
1: let's talk about your newest release the 17-year cicadas Uh, how did this library come about and what went into gathering these cicada sounds
2: kind of going up the bowed cactus thing like sometimes you don't have to go out very far to find these things i was really lucky that these 17-year cicadas emerged right near where i live in philadelphia so they don't actually come to philadelphia in that brood but there's some down in delaware and mostly in the baltimore area so there's different broods of these cicadas that emerge on different years, but this was brood 10. So they emerged this year and I think they come out again in 2038. It was fun because normally I have to go to all these much more remote places to find a really interesting animal or soundscape just because there's lots of man-made noise pollution on the East coast of the United States. There's too many people and airplanes and everything to do a lot of nature sounds recording. The cicadas were an interesting thing because they're so like insanely loud that you can actually record them in some of these environments that have a little bit of noise pollution. And so I was able to drive a couple hours down into Delaware and experience these kind of apocalyptic insect swarms in person. I did a first day of scouting trying to find different locations. And what's interesting is there's actually three different species that come out at the same time. I thought it was all one type of cicada. There's three different species. One's a magicicada cassini. So the cassinis are a cicada that sound pretty similar to your average cicada that people have heard, your North American cicada that's a yearly one that you'll hear at night sometimes or during the day. So they have an intense noise from about three to 30 kilohertz. And if you get really close, there's actually some really interesting ultrasonic stuff going on there if you get the mics really close to them. They are by far the loudest ones, so the Cassinias are the really loud ones. There's a second species called a Magicicada septendesum. So they make this really pretty drone. It's mostly around 1,200 to 1,500 hertz. And so they do these little pharaoh calls, they're called. It's like this droning with the little tail at the end. If you get 10,000 of those doing it at the same time, that meow that little pharaoh call blends into this really pretty drone and so what happens is you get this lush cricket-like chorus sound that blends together into this kind of otherworldly drone and so it's a very definitive pitch that you hear it's at about 1200 hertz it's really interesting because i think like a lot of bird songs there's more variation in them because they're learned to some degree at least within some species with these insects, the sounds that they're making are much more instinctual, to my understanding. And so they're basically all making the same sound. And so the septendecim ones, they're all doing that same call, and it's almost all at the exact same pitch at 1200 hertz. And so it blends into this really pretty drone. And what's nice is that the Cassini's are the normal cicada-sounding ones. They're at a higher frequency. And then the septendecim ones, are the droning ones, and they're totally separate, so you can hear them distinctly, but the mix of them together gives you this kind of otherworldly cicada sound. And then there's a third species called a septendecula, which make these short pulsing, like but there's not very many of those. The Cassinis are generally so loud that they overpower them. But um, these cicadas are daytime cicadas. So the different species peak at different times. So the droning decent ones, those start in the morning more and then the Cassinis come out in the afternoon. And then the Cassinis peak at like... I was clocking it at 90 to 100 dB when you get into these swarms. Like it's absolutely intense to experience this. And then like the Cassinis will synchronize their swells. They all sync up, so you get this really powerful, ocean-swelling, apocalyptic insect sound. And so it's really, really neat to hear it in person. It was pretty tricky to figure out how to record them. Once they hatch, they roost up in the canopy, and they do their calls in the canopy. And a lot of the the average forest height with these eastern United States trees is 100 feet or something. And so like I can't get anywhere close to them. So you get this distant cicada wash, and I was trying to get this really close-up ones but i was able to find some shorter trees that a bunch of them had recently hatched and they'd be right at the top of it i found a few spots with these kind of 25 foot tall trees or so and then i could get right into the swarm and i'd get my mic up on a boom pole or climb the tree a little bit and then i could get the mic right up next to him The cicadas come out millions at a time so they don't really run from predators right their defense is the fact that there's a million of them and the predators are just going to eat them until they're full and go away and so the cicadas aren't really scared of you like a normal bug and so i'd be under this tree trying to record them and they're landing all over me they're in my hair they're on my shirt they're going down the back of my shirt and these are big bugs they're like one to two inches they don't bite you or anything but like i'm trying to stand still and do these recordings but then they land all over me If you move the mics slowly, you can actually get the mic really, really close to them and they don't fly off. And so I was able to get the mics within one or two inches of them. And then you can hear the individual calls. You can hear the individual like old Pharaoh calls. You can hear the Cassini's screeching. Sometimes I would actually get the Cassini's would land on the blimp and they'd get stuck in the microphone fur, which is fabulous because then they do this kind of distressed call that sounds like an insect, sort of making a dial up internet sort of electrical sound it has a lot more ultrasonic energy that'll get picked up by the mics that'll go anywhere from like 30 to 50 60 kilohertz and so that's really neat. I wanted the distant swarms but then I also wanted to get really close to them so the trickiest part was finding these places where you could get close to them. They really like sunny hot days so um, you got to be out there when it's 90, 95, 100 degrees Fahrenheit and climb some trees and get your mics up in there and I would barely have to turn the level up on my headphones. I was more just using the headphones as a hearing protection because it was so insanely loud and it is a very intense sound. It was wonderful to be able to record something like that right in my backyard. I think the 17-year cicadas are the longest gestation period of any insect. And what they do is they lay these eggs and they turn into nymphs. And then the nymphs live underground for 17 years by sucking nutrients out of the tree roots, to my understanding. And then they come out 17 years later and it's just really, really fascinating, so... It's a very intense sound, but there's actually a lot of subtlety to it with the three different species. If you can get really close to them, they have some really fascinating screeches and clicks and droning sounds. And they're by no means shy, so they'll land all over you in your mics if you can find the right tree. So it was just a really fun experience to find something like that in my backyard. And we'll put a link to some cicada websites that track all the different broods. You won't be disappointed if you like sound. It's a intensely powerful, loud, animal experience and i highly recommend it
1: more than that it's this like physical experience uh you could feel these waves of cicadas i grew up in pennsylvania so i've experienced this firsthand um it's almost nauseating it's like being seasick because it comes in these waves and it's this intense feeling in your brain and in your ears
2: yeah and it's it's right in the frequency where our ears are the most sensitive too. So it's like, it's really loud by decibel. And then most of the energy is in the like six to 8,000 Hertz range, which just like blasts your ears.
1: Yeah, it is quite intense for sure.
2: Yeah. Some people hate it, but it's for, for a sound nerd like me, it's it's super cool. So,
1: So what would the ideal recording trip be like for you? Or is there a recording trip that you would just absolutely love to go on?
2: So for me, an ideal recording trip would be any place that I got to go off the grid for two or three weeks. Generally, it takes me a long time to fully detach from the day-to-day of city life. And I really love going on these long trips to kind of give my mind a chance to kind of rewild itself after spending too much in the city. So if I can travel for two to three months a year that really helps me reconnect to these places in the natural world that I love to visit. So um, ideally I get to be out of Philadelphia for at least three months a year. Any kind of wild adventurous place will fill that need generally. So it's the length that's really important to me. A trip of three or four or five days just doesn't do it. You have to spend two or three weeks in a place to really dig deeper into its soundscape. And then as far as specific places in a perfect world, I have a long list of places that I will never be able to get to all of them. But I'm most interested, as I mentioned before, the kind of wide open spaces of deserts. I especially like deserts in the winter. I'm most interested in the Arctic right now. I've already been to the far north in Alaska and Iceland. I'm very interested in going to Northern Scandinavia up onto the island Svalbard up in the far north and then hopefully Greenland as well. Those are the three big ones that are a little easier to get to from Philadelphia. And then I'd also love to to go to various places in South America the most interesting spot to me right now is down in Patagonia in Southern Chile and Argentina. Just amazing, amazing mountains and landscapes down there. I love visiting big mountains. I'd love to go to the, the seven summits, the, the seven highest mountains on each continent. And then, um, yeah, I'd love to go to Antarctica before I die. There's so much amazing marine wildlife down there and getting down there with some hydrophones and recording the soundscapes down there would be a wonderful adventure that I hope to be able to do someday. So there's a big long list and um, yeah, we'll see what opportunities present themselves in the next few years. I've had a wonderful summer of recording. Did a big trip out to Colorado and then this big trip to Iceland so I've got a bunch of studio time ahead of me for the next month or two and that'll keep me very busy.
1: Well, Best of luck on all these future recording trips. I can't wait to hear the sounds you capture and to experience these places through your recordings. Thomas, thank you so much for being part of our featured sound creator series. I really appreciate you sharing your time and your story with me.
2: Well, thanks so much for having me on and giving me a place to share some of these stories.
0: That's it for this episode. A big thanks to Jennifer Walden for doing the interview and to Thomas Rex Beverly for being on the show. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. So be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. Be sure to subscribe to the SoundFick podcast. Thanks a lot for listening and see you next time. Take care.